Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, pitchers and catchers reported, we're getting we're getting close to a season. You know, I look out my window, and it's snowing. There's like 80 feet <laughs> of snow in my yard. So, you know, the idea of pitchers and catchers reporting to some warm climate is like, ah, that's like heaven. I can't understand it, but I, I love it. Hey, hey, it's chilly here. Tomorrow's <laughs> high is only 72. Arizona. <laughs> I might have to wear a sweater. <laughs> oh man, it's not even above freezing in the Northeast. <laughs> and that's not not to even mention what's going on in Texas and other parts of the country. Yeah. So I I know how lucky I have it here. Yeah. Uh, but but we <laughs> we get that on the other end in the summer. So. <laughs> Uh, so there's there's been a ton of news. Everybody decided to save all their moves, at least all their uh, all their late additions and all that, until the week before pitchers and catchers reported, and even the day of pitchers and catchers reporting in a lot of cases. <laughs> uh, so we got tons to cover here. Let's just jump into it with this first most obvious one, biggest move of the entire off season, you could argue here, with Fernando Tatis and the Padres agreeing to a historically large contract extension. So the details here, it's 14 years, $340 million, $10 million signing bonus as part of that. It's reportedly backloaded. We don't know a ton about the specifics. We know there's no deferrals. We know there's no no trade clause. And we haven't heard any reports of opt-outs yet. So it, as of now, it's looking like a straight 14-340, which is insane, but also... <laughs> I don't. I, I think you can agree with me here. My gut reaction to this was, "That's it." Yeah, it's it's rational. It's not insane at all. <laughs> if 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 you study these things like we do, and you're buried in spreadsheets, you can map this out. And so, and I tweeted last night after after doing the first cut of it. You know, there's a ton of surplus now. That assumes like normal circumstances, right? But you assume with sort of a fair amount of injury risk, you assume amount of assume of a fair a fair amount of contract risk, which is like the opportunity cost risk, with especially with a longer contract like that. And yet, <clears throat> you know, this is a guy. This is a kid who's just turned 22. He still has his whole career ahead of him. He's you know most players peak at age 27, maybe 28. So if you work it out, even if you assume conservatively that he doesn't go up from where he's now which is roughly a five war player let's say he's just a five war player from here on until age 28 and then maybe then he starts to decline a little bit until age 35 that's still a whopping amount of surplus when you do all the math and that's what what the beauty of this contract is from the padres point of view is they really protect themselves from from the downside of it because there's so much uh surplus built in and the reason for that is unlike most you know free agent contracts guys who are already sort of at the peak of their careers or even behind beyond it into their 30s you're dealing with kind of the backside of their career right this one is the front side of its career this he hasn't even peaked yet so you're getting the benefit of all his best years ahead of you until he peaks and then he declines and so uh, the whole contract kind of factors that in and therefore there's a ton of surplus now obviously he's also very young and so you want to have a sort of a buffer there because there's a small sample size he's only played for one season and a third or so you know 37 percent of the last one so you got to figure okay maybe he's not that great maybe there's a sophomore slump coming up that hasn't been completed yet maybe he does turn into a pumpkin well you've still got a lot of um Yes, that's a risk. That's the risk that the Padres bear. Um, and and one reason why there's not a no-trade clause is maybe if something goes wrong and somebody else wants him, you could, if the worst happened. 
uh, they probably are taking out some insurance if the worst happens as well. Um, so from the Padres' point of view, it looks awfully good. And I'm sure from, from Tatis's point of view, he's suddenly a very rich man. So I'm sure he enjoys that as well. So it seems like a win-win. Yeah, we're going to have to really restrain ourselves here because I feel like we could talk about this for a full podcast in and of itself. There's so many different angles to look at this from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you, meant, you, you mentioned he's a five-war player, but like you look at his career to this point, he's played 143 games by fan graphs. He's a six-and-a-half win player in those 143, and that extrapolates out to more than seven. Granted, that first rookie season, 2019, he had a 4-10 BABIP. That's not happening again. Yeah. But... Then you go into 2020, and he he's the same or better in every category across the board. His defense improved. His walk rate increased. His strikeout rate decreased. He hit for more power. He st- stole more bases on a rate basis. It, he became an even more productive player if that was possible. And so unprecedented, historic, those are the words you're going to hear thrown around about this deal, both because of the length of it, because of how young he is, and what you really have here is you have the closest thing to another young start of his career, Mike Trout type that we've seen. You, you even compare him to a Juan Soto or a Ronald Acuna. He's getting a younger start than them and he's off to a bit of a stronger start than them. Mm-hmm. And so he's getting paid along those lines. As you, as you mentioned, there's obvious risk involved with the, the short track record here of only 143 games. Um, with there have been, I, I wouldn't call them questions, but uh, they they explored kind of his defensive versatility a little bit uh, last spring. They tried him in the outfield a little bit, if I if I recall. Um, so so it's not necessarily a slam dunk. We're not saying he is Trout, but it's hard to look at this deal and dislike it for either side. I mean I mean like I said, my gut reaction was it's an underpay. But then when you look at where he is in terms of his um, in terms of his team control, this was his third year at the major league minimum. And then he was going to have three additional years in arbitration. And we, we've discussed before how arbitration doesn't pay players what they're worth. Mm-hmm. And so the way you can kind of section it out over here is he was only going to make half a million this year through those arbitration years, even if if he continues at this pace he's making what 35 million let's call it 40 million and so you're just you're seeing that he gets a 10 year 300 million dollar guarantee on top of the team control and arbitration salaries that he already had mm-hmm. and that's maybe a little bit low if he does continue on this pace but there also is a bit of a ceiling there it's something we have discussed in the past with trout specifically to where if we just let the numbers do their thing and don't rein them in at all, he'll have an exorbitantly high unrealistic trade value. Right. That doesn't necessarily account for how difficult it is for a team to take on that contract, even if they do recognize that he's worth more money than you could ever really pay him. (laughs) So it it seems like with this kind of contract, this kind of player, we're hitting into that ceiling a little bit again. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we do have him at $269 million in surplus, which is absurd, <laughs> but yeah. that maybe we adjust that down a little bit more, see that as kind of the similar ceiling argument to Trout that we don't necessarily have with Acuna. And so uh, Tatis, we have behind Acuna as the second most valuable player and uh, second most valuable player in baseball in terms of trade value. And, 
Acuna's comes largely from that ridiculously affordable contract where any team could fit that into their budget no problem and would be more than happy to. So if, for whatever reason, (laughs) the Braves decided it's time to trade Acuna, they're not going to have any problems doing that. There is no ceiling there, no glass ceiling or whatever you want to call it. Uh, But that might exist here with Tatis in the same way it does with Trout. It might, but it's only like a 24-ish AAV, right? Mm-hmm. If you right. if you do the math, so that's really not that much for a superstar. Now, granted, they backloaded it, so we'll see how that plays itself out. Um, but you know, it, it's there's there's two ways to look at this. You mentioned that sort of trout ceiling, as we is we don't really have a word for it, but call it that. Um, that's if you're if you're being realistic. If you just want to go with on paper then okay sky's the limit now we know nobody has the farm to trade you know like most farms like even the rays and i've done the math here or you know their their top 30 prospects would add up to a little more than 300 million most other teams aren't even close they're in the twos or ones and so like you wouldn't trade 30 prospects for tatis right <laughs> you, know, yeah. you, you know so it's just completely unrealistic right so you can either look at it there as just this is purely theoretical and on paper and he's not going to get traded anyway he's we haven't coded as none because um, why would they? So, so, but so you can look at it just for fun as here's the theoretical value, or you could look at it as sort of okay, what's the realistic one? You'd have to th- you'd have to put that ceiling on it, if you will, and, and make it more realistic. So there's two ways to look at it. So that 269 number I tweeted about last night is just the purely fun on paper sort of first yeah. estimate, <laughs> um, and we can look and we, we can play it that way as well. Um, but it doesn't really matter because it's not going to be traded anyway. It's not available. Mm-hmm. So so I think it's fun to just look at it that way. Yeah, and another approach we often take to this is what would this guy get if he were a free agent? Mm -hmm. And so I don't think – I'm trying to do this math in my head real quick. I probably should have just pulled the numbers up. I don't think he's getting um, $609 million over his 14 years in a free agent contract. I don't think anybody is signing him to that. But I think he might get more. If if he went out – if he were somehow a free agent today – all right, let's say yesterday before he signs the deal. If you were somehow a free agent and he said, I will only sign a 14-year deal, you'd imagine he gets more than 340. I, I mean, imagine yeah. he's taking some level of a hometown discount. He's taken to San Diego. I read some stories in The Athletic. He took to San Diego from the second he got there um, in that now very, very infamous James Shields trade. Um, it, it seems like a really incredible partnership between the city, the team, and the player where it looks like they're going to force San Diego to be a baseball town. Like <laughs> we know they used to have the chargers. They no longer do. Um, the Padres are the only pro sports team left there. It seems like there's a, a spot here to take advantage of that and really increase the Padres notoriety, which is something that would have been unheard of five years ago, considering just the history of this franchise. Yeah. Um, two other minor notes on Tatis's end is that one, He's going to be living and playing most of his games in California, which means he's going to have to deal with California taxes. So those are going to lop off about half of that 340 million. Not that anybody's crying for the dude had only taken home about 170 mil after taxes, but that's going to cost him a bit. And additionally, there was a report by Ken Rosenthal of the athletic today um, about uh, an agreement that Tatis made with, I believe it's called big league advance 
is the name of this company <clears throat> that uh, reaches out to minor leaguers to top prospects and says, we'll give you this much money right now in exchange for X percent of your future earnings. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know exactly what percent that is, um, but he is going to be paying some of this contract to them. I don't think he minds too much. I think he's more than happy with the way things are going to shake out from all of this. Yeah. And, you know, he's also got marketing opportunities. Right. He's already know. got a deal with Gatorade and I <laughs> yeah. think Adidas, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. So there's plenty on top of that. And, <clears throat> you know, these numbers that we quoted just as a pure sort of exercise are just on field numbers, right? That doesn't even include like, you know, what he's going to bring, you know, as as a charismatic young star, bring more fans to the stands, to your point about San Diego becoming a baseball town. He creates excitement. He's, you know, he's very fun to watch. In addition to the fact that they could market him, you know, more and probably, you know, sell more shirts and all that stuff. So there's more sort of money on the table for them as well. And, and as well as if they make the playoffs, you're getting the right. benefit I was of just gonna go there. Post, yeah. post season, post season contributions. I mean, so it doesn't include any of that, which is all win win. Yeah, he's he's very clearly one of, if not the most marketable players in baseball. <clears throat> yeah. I think he's got some competition with Aaron Judge just because Judge has New York and obviously Acuna and Soto have. And then Trout's a few behind because he, he has some marketing issues partially to his own, partially to the Angels, never putting a winner around him. Mm -hmm. That's a full discussion for itself. But mm -hmm. Tatis incredibly marketable. It's hard to... It isn't hard to imagine him making San Diego a, a good deal of money based on that alone. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I don't think there's any way the Padres can go wrong here. I mean, granted, of course there is. <laughs> I mean, Tatis could just fall off a cliff tomorrow and be a replacement level player. And if that happens, yeah, of course, they just wasted $340 million. But that's not happening. Within yeah. the realm of realism... <laughs> There's so much room for him to regress and for this deal to still work out. And keep in mind, his dad was a professional baseball player mm -hmm. as well. So he comes. So not only does that give him sort of a genetic advantage, if you will, but a work ethic. And he understands the game. He mm -hmm. kind of grew up around it. So so there's more to trust there, if you will. You know, he's not like you know out of nowhere. He he's got the he's got the pedigree, and that gives you a sense of confidence that he's not going to turn into a pumpkin. Yeah, and something we talked about. I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast necessarily, but with both Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna <clears throat> is sometimes players coming out of Latin American countries or wherever it is that they're coming out of with maybe a lower income base, they might be more eager to sign that first contract, take a discount on it so they have more money available to them to send home, support their family, friends, whatever. Whereas Tatis, he did he did get a smaller signing bonus than a lot of players, uh, only seven hundred thousand. I know, only seven hundred thousand. <laughs> but seven hundred thousand signing bonus isn't the greatest. But as you mentioned, his father, Fernando Tatis Sr., was a former big leaguer, and he had some of that big league money that he's sitting on. He endorsement deals, further notoriety. He was never a superstar to the caliber of Fernando Tatis Jr., but. He was a name, and he played in the big leagues for long enough. He's got some money saved up from that. And so that both leads into, A, what you were talking about with he's getting the big league gene pool and the big league training growing up that he has mm -hmm. access to. But also, he has less incentive to accept a lowball deal because he's already got a little bit of a baseline to work off of. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. We could spend all night on this. <laughs> <laughs> 
it, I, I, will, I will gladly talk Fernando Tatis Jr. with anyone for as long as they want to, but we got a lot of news to hit here. Uh, unless you got anything else to add, we should probably move on. I just had one other point, which is I saw some mm-hmm. tweets saying, oh, that means, you know, watch out for Lindor's contract. He's going to get a bundle. T-. I'm like, okay, that's a totally different scenario yeah. because he's, you know, he's several years older and, you know, he's going to he's about to become a free agent that's a whole different sort of calculation so don't lump apples with oranges is my, my yeah. fr- you know look at the age here which is really the unique sort of thing about about tatis here you know you know lindor is not going to get a 14-year contract and there's a tendency to be a knee-jerk like oh he got that so he's going to get that no mm-hmm. this is a totally different scenario if there is anyone that this is <sighs> meaningful for it's juan soto that's also mm-hmm. a little bit of a different situation soto is uh i don't know if he's necessarily older but he is um, he has had more major league time. He's in arbitration already. Yep. Um, so the Nationals are going to have to figure that out in the very near future. Yeah. Um, if he hits free agency, that's a guarantee that he's setting a free agent record. <laughs> but yeah. uh, this could be, if they do agree to an extension, it could be somewhere along these lines, if not more, because he is farther along in arbitration. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's the closest copy, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so now we're going to jump from Fernando Tatis Jr. to Jeffrey Springs. <laughs> <laughs> so Superstar that he is. <laughs> yes. So this was, we're going to start with a trade that we missed on. It was a really weird trade, and even from the second it was reported, I went, that's not right. What's going on here? Yeah. So the Rays picked up right-handed pitcher Chris Mazza and left-handed pitcher Jeffrey Springs from the Red Sox. Maza was at 0.2 million in trade value. Springs was at zero. Both pitchers were recently designated for assignment by the Red Sox. So you're thinking, they're not going to be sending much back. Well, they did. (laughs) They sent back infielder Nick Sogard, younger brother of Eric Sogard. Okay, he's a sort of fringe, barely prospect type, 0.1 million in trade value. As well as catcher Ronaldo Hernandez, who we had at 13.8 million. So that's very clearly lopsided, even with... 100,000 in cash also going to the to the raise there. Um, and, and there's no necessarily clear explanation for this. I mean, I've seen some arguments that, oh, the Rays have soured on Hernandez, which, okay, sure. But he was, he's still fairly young. He was just a top 100 prospect a year ago. Unless he just completely flopped, showed up to camp weighing 300 pounds whatever (laughs) you gotta imagine there's some sort of a market for him that's better than a couple dfa'd pitchers and then i saw the argument oh well they see things they can tweak in maza in springs and yeah that happens all the time especially with teams like tampa they pick guys up off of waivers or make smaller trades for recently dfa'd guys because they think they can tweak them and then they bring them in and a lot of the times for tampa they do but that doesn't justify giving up a piece with significant value for them. Why couldn't they have just given up less for them or waited for them to actually hit waivers and claim them that way or something along those lines? So there isn't an argument here that makes a ton of clear sense as to why they gave up so much apparent value for so little apparent value in a league-wide sense. We've discussed this before with the Pirates and uh, the Joe Musgrove trade specifically, where Yes, maybe the Pirates were higher than Hudson than everyone else on Hudson Head, but there's still a value gap there that they can make because if the entire league thinks Ronaldo Hernandez here is worth 14 million 
and the Rays think he's worth one million or whatever, then they they don't want to treat him as if he is worth one million and trade him for a bucket of baseballs. Right. They want to get that full fourteen million back in a player they like better. So, I I have a tough time seeing this one. We usually find a way, even when we miss, to say either oh we were wrong about this player or we can say oh yeah that makes some sense maybe if they see this this and this i'm having a really tough time with this one you and me both man i mean look jeffrey springs has been dfa'd a couple of times and one of those times he was traded for a nobody from texas i don't remember uh, whose name it was but um but but you know that's a sort of another indicator that there's really no market value there Um, maza was the same way um so yeah, I don't think we're seeing like, you know, suddenly we're way off on Mazza and Springs in terms of value. Like most, maybe they were worth like one, you know, like you, you're not going to. They were both DFA'd. That's, that's enough of DFA'd. an indicator that. Yeah, yeah. And and the Red Sox are on paper a worse team than the Rays. So like mm-hmm. they didn't deem them worthy of a roster spot. Um, so the so I don't think there's much there to debate. So in terms of their evaluations. So the real sort of curious part is with Hernandez. I mean, yes, his stock did drop, but all of the prospect lists that we sort of follow didn't have him dropping that much. He's basically a 45 or a 45 plus. Maybe you can go down, you know, but that's still how we get the 13.8. I mean, are all those people wrong? Maybe it's more speculative. We're basically disaggregating consensus opinions on this, but hopefully expert opinions, Baseball mm-hmm. America, fan graphs, and so on. So these people presumably know what they're talking about, and we usually find that they're pretty right or pretty close. But it's sometimes they will be off. Um, they were a little low on Hudson Head, maybe. Um, so you know, so maybe he's lower than that. But even if he were lower than that, even if you chopped it off by half, you, you cut him down to like a forty plus he's gonna be worth five so it's still gonna be imbalanced like really did he fall that far mm-hmm. so i can't make any sense of that either i'm going to be the one that raises this question which is maybe there's something else we don't know that's in the works um you know we've seen in the past where two teams make a deal that's lopsided and then a little bit later they make another deal that's lopsided the other way and if you put the two together they balance out so here we have the rays and Heim Bloom, who used to work for the Rays, talking to each other, you know, mm-hmm. Neander was his boss, so they know each other well. So maybe there's, you know, a closeness there that maybe there, maybe this is part one of a two-part deal. That's total speculation. Yeah. Uh, but it may also just be that, um, you know, the Rays had soured on Hernandez. That's probably the more likely explanation, as, as hard as it is to believe that all these prospect evaluators are wrong. If he's falling all the way down to, like, a... A, a 40 for a position player that's 2.2 then i can see it's a fair trade so maybe that's what happened that's probably the most likely scenario yeah i mean on that along those lines uh, i want to say that it, it's pure speculation not only that that's what's happening here that it could be there could be another following move that kind of evens it out but also that that's a thing that even happens um that's just kind of an observation we made we have no confirmation of whether that was the thinking when those trades happened uh the the biggest examples that come to mind are last off season the rays and the padres made some moves where one trade was lopsided in favor of the padres the other one was lopsided in favor of the rays you put them together and it was like a perfect deal that was with uh trent grisha or no, not Trent Grisham, excuse me. Um, that was with uh, Hunter Renfro and Tommy Pham and mm-hmm. Emilio Pagan, Xavier Edwards, all those guys, Jake Cronenworth. Yep. Um, 
where we kind of combined those trades and saw, huh, we missed on both of these individually, but we put them together and they're perfect. I wonder if there's something there. Yeah. And so we, we never got that specifically confirmed from any front office official or anything like that. So it's, it's kind of just an observation we've made and it makes some sense, but we're not, we're not saying that's definitively happening here at all. I'd also like to mention that a lot of fans I think tend to think that prospect evaluators are just independent evaluators. They're just their own scouts. And so you could say, ah, whatever. I don't really care what he thinks that might've been true in the past, but now it's the top prospect evaluators, especially guys like Longenhagen, they have league sources and they're reaching out to these league sources and that's how they create these rankings. Obviously they use their own, uh, their own scouting reports as well. They still go out and look at guys, but they're constantly checking with their league sources. Um, about whether they have guys in the right spot, they should move them up or down, whatever. And so it is kind of an, an amalgamation of the league's consensus about a guy on some of these uh, prospect lists kind of mixed with some of the analysts' own opinions. Um, the only thing, and this is like, this is such a specific scenario that I, I can't imagine it's actually true, but the only, one of the only things I can really come up with here is maybe maybe the Rays had been pushing for a Springs type for either Springs or Maza or even both or whoever uh, for a while now and not quite getting anywhere on it. And then they get DFA'd and the Rays are pretty low on the waiver order. So they're afraid, okay, if we just let this guy go through, then there's no chance he's following all the way to us. Someone else is going to claim him first. And we think we have one small change here that can make him the next Josh Hader Devin Williams, Nick Anderson, whoever you want to pick. Um, so may, if they believe that strongly in the guy and they're, they're talking to Boston or saying, we really want this guy in Boston saying it's Hernandez or bust and the Rays are already low on Hernandez, then maybe you say like they just bite the bullet and do it, even though they might've gotten higher, higher actual value by trading Hernandez elsewhere. That's such a niche little situation. There's so many holes you can poke in it, but that's one of the only explanations I can come up with. And that's not a bad one, actually, because you look at the Rays' track record, you know, to get Nick Anderson, who on paper at the time didn't look like much, but they did trade a top 100 prospect for him at the time. Um, you know, they traded uh, Nick Solak, who was, you know, top 15 or so prospect for them for Pete Fairbanks, which who also looked like not much of a reliever. So they do, they have done this in the past. So I think that's plausible. Um, it's a bit of a reach. Like if mm-hmm. they liked spring so much, why didn't they take him the last time he was DFA? Yeah. Uh, you know, he certainly could have been available before this. He doesn't seem like he's that high in demand. So, um, but it's stranger things have happened. So mm. I, you know, I'll buy it. And I will tell uh, you what this isn't, what this definitively isn't. And that's a roster thing because we, we've talked at length in the past about how the Rays have to make a lot of these weird moves to fit and jungle around, juggle around their 40 man roster. This doesn't feel like that at all because they're adding a roster spot in this trade by trading one 40 man guy in Hernandez for two in Mazza and Springs. Yeah. I mean, maybe it is a case of if we got a DFA someone down the line, we'd, we would DFA Mazza, but we wouldn't want to DFA Hernandez and then we'd be in a, in a spot. So maybe it's that, but that's not what it looks like. It doesn't look like a, another case of them clearing the roster because Hernandez has options. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I do not know. That, yeah. That was, a, that was a lot of words just to say, <laughs> we don't really know about this one. 
will <laughs> I fully expect the Rays to prove us wrong. They're really good at that. But yeah, it, it, it just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so so I will end with one last point. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, there was a, a, a bit going around Twitter that uh, somebody had reported, I forget who, but there's a sort of a, when you're dealing with the Rays and the Dodgers in particular, mm. you know, when they'll Kyle ask. McDaniel. Yes, Kyle McDaniel. Thank you. He's great. Mm-hmm. And he's at ESPN now. He's at Fangraphs. But he was reporting that, you know, he's, he's hearing from sources that, like, when the Rays or the Dodgers call and they say they want one of your mediocre guys, you're like, huh, <laughs> what? Like they're thinking, what do what do they see in him that I don't see in him? Uh oh, I better not trade him, you know. So there's there's this intimidation factor now because the Rays are snow sneaky and the Dodgers to an extent as well. Like you don't want to trade with these guys, but what do they know that we don't? And so yeah, maybe there's a little bit of that going on here. And, and I did poke around some like Rays fan sites to try and find some of their reactions, see if there was anything I might be missing. I did see some speculation that the Rays are bad at developing or identifying catcher talent which maybe there's something to it maybe it's just kind of random um they've they've traded away a couple guys and steven vote and jonah heim I, be- I believe there are a couple other names on that list and now hernandez who went on and had success elsewhere so yeah. maybe but that that feels weird to me i i wouldn't buy that the rays are so talented at everything they do i i wouldn't believe they have one glaring blind spot in its catching yeah, that would, that would be a weird blind spot to have, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, they made another trade, and we understand this one a lot better. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> they traded John Curtis, who we had at $0 million in trade value, um, to the Marlins for first-base prospect Evan Edwards, $0.2 million. Really a minor move here. Uh, the Rays, this one probably is more of a roster shuffle move. They've been kind of... Moving around a lot of these sort of interesting, sort of not <laughs> um, veteran relievers that had a lot of success for them last year, but probably weren't going to sustain it going forward. Um, they've been moving a lot of these guys, and they found a taker here in Miami who's been trying to add some of those veteran types to their own bullpen. So it, it makes sense. Yeah, that one's a, you know, <clears throat> just, just a word. What we miss, we we dissect it and try to figure out, just like we did with the whole Ronaldo Hernandez thing. But most of the time, we don't miss. Most of them are, mm-hmm. are pretty much fair. So um, our track record is still very quite strong, still in the ninety-five percent range. So um, so so most of these are going to be <clears throat> yes, yes, we were right on those. But once in a while, we do miss and we analyze those. Yeah, and Edwards here, the return. He's he's. I feel like he's Evan White, but not as respected as a prospect I'm, yeah. and he's that type of hitter where he's a first base type he's got the on-base skills some doubles power not a whole lot more he wasn't a top 30 prospect for the marlins uh, by baseball america so just kind of one of those little interesting guys that <laughs> kind of what you were alluding to earlier with uh, mcdaniel's tweets that uh that you know, a couple of years from now, he's going to be pushing for the home run title for the Rays, but... <laughs> or the next Mike Brasso, you know? Yeah, yeah. One of those. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Okay, this one is another relatively minor trade, but I think it's worth mentioning because it's kind of proving our point that we've made multiple times about roster crunches. So the Mets traded Ali Sanchez, young catcher, to the Cardinals uh, in exchange for just cash considerations. Uh, Ali Sanchez had been designated for assignment when the Mets signed Jonathan VR to a big league deal. And Ali Sanchez is only 24. He's a highly regarded defensive catcher 
not much of a bat, but he's got enough enough prospect um, hype, notoriety, to at least have a little bit of value. We had him at 1.4 million in trade value, and that wasn't that number isn't bogged down by roster risk because he has options left. Right. So. It, this is very purely just a case of the Mets had a roster crunch and the Cardinals took advantage of it. And that happens. Good for the Cardinals. And, you know, a few years ago, the A's took advantage of it with Ramon Laureano. That's how they got him for uh, mm-hmm. for Brandon Bailey. Um, and the Astros had a, had a roster crunch. It happens sometimes. And you pick up somebody and you take a shot at them. So, yeah, I mean, Ali Sanchez was not one of their top prospects, but he had a, just enough to warrant a giving him a shot for basically nothing so why not mm-hmm. and that, that is not to suggest in any way that uh ali sanchez is the next ramon laureano <laughs> but it, it is a similar situation and you can really find value if you are a team that uh, keeps a couple of those roster spots open to make a deal like this yeah all right, so now we have a couple more trades to get to, but we're going to section them off a little bit because there were a couple teams that were just crazy active this last week. The first one is the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, so they made, again, a fairly minor trade here. We're going to start out with at least um, trading Josh Sabors to the Rangers, uh, right-handed pitcher Sabors, who we had at 0.4 million in trade value, traded him to the Rangers for right-handed pitcher Zahn Zom. Jean Zambrano. Oh, God. <laughs> Why is that such a difficult <laughs> name to say? Jean Zambrano, <laughs> um, who is a, a right-handed pitcher as well. Um, we, we did not have him in the system at the time of the trade. I'm assuming he's since been added. Yeah, 0.1. He's on. Yeah. Fringe, very fringy prospect. Yeah, and that's, again, another roster crunch type thing. Saboris has had... He's been a little bit interesting over the last few years as a sort of relief prospect. Um, but never put it together in either AAA or the big leagues. Um, so it's just another case of, you know, a team taking advantage of the DFA, giving up some barely even lottery ticket type prospect to say, let's add this interesting ish reliever to our bullpen and see what happens. Yeah. Good for the Rangers. I mean, they saw, you know, it's generally a good idea when a really good team can't fit all of its players on its 40, you know, it's better to get one from, from a stacked roster like that, you yeah. know, that, than it is to get one from, you know, the pirates or not picking on them, but you know, from a, yeah. from, you know, a DFA from the Dodgers is potentially higher value than a DFA of a losing team. Yeah. The 40, <laughs> the 41st best player that the Dodgers need on their 40 man roster is probably better than the 25th best player the pirates have on their 25 man roster exactly well sir 20 26 man roster now gosh that's gonna take some getting used to yeah all right um next one we will go to the marlins acquiring dylan floro from the dodgers another move by the marlins to pick up a veteran relief arm here so we had floro at 2.1 million dollars in trade value they sent back left-handed pitcher alex vasilla uh, lefty reliever, interesting relief prospect, uh, 0.8 million. And right-handed pitcher Kyle Hurt, who was their fifth-round pick in 2020, and we had his value after adding him to the system at 0.6 million. So fair trade, 2.1 to the Marlins, 1.4 to the Dodgers. So similar story here. So when you do have a roster crunch, you're going to – you're probably going to be sending away the slightly higher valued one because you're sort of in a time crunch when you DFA them or when you have to move a move, make a move to something else. So you take what you can get. But they, they did get, I think, two interesting prospects. Vessia in particular has had some buzz around him as, a, as an interesting relief arm. And I think 
it's a way of for the Dodgers probably you know kind of you know turning over kind of recycling a little bit um, with a guy who has kind of a who's a slightly younger version of the same sort of you know pitcher middle reliever but with interesting stuff so I expect his value to grow as they start to use him more I think they'll they'll do well with him not sure about Hurt though I think he's just a fringy prospect yeah and Craig Mish of the Miami Herald reported that the uh, the Dodgers had been, they, they've been discussing this Dylan Floro deal for a while so maybe it wasn't necessarily fully a roster crunch thing and, it, and the timing might have been roster crunch related but um, this deal has been in the works for most of the off season uh, two months he said and the holdup was that the Dodgers were asking for left-handed pitcher Jake Eater who was the Marlins fourth round pick uh, we have him at 1.1 million so that, yeah that would have made the trade. Uh, a lot closer in terms of trade value. It would have been 1.9 versus 2.1. But eventually uh, the Marlins got the Dodgers to budge there and go with Hurt instead of Eater. And so tipped it in their favor a little bit. But I mean, at that point, we're talking about a fourth round pick versus a fifth round pick. Not a huge gap between the two. It's, it's, It's not that noticeable. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, good job Marlins for negotiating there. Yeah. And it's always interesting when we get a little bit more of that behind the scenes kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and Vasquez is an interesting relief prospect for sure. He's got some options. Um, he struggled in his very short 2020 debut, um, but he's been very successful in the minor leagues and with, with good peripherals to back it up. So he could be the next <laughs> the next scary late-inning Dodgers arm. Keep an eye on him. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then the biggest move of all of these for the Dodgers, we're going to jump to a free agent signing before we get back to the trades, is the Dodgers re-signed Justin Turner, as literally everyone expected. <laughs> so <laughs> it's two years, $34 million, with a $14 million team option for the third year. Um, so basically, and with escalators, it could be a total of $52 million over the, th- the three years there. And that's that was the, the sticking point for both sides all offseason was two years versus three years. It looks like they <laughs> settled on two years when Turner didn't have too much else of a market and spring training just got closer and closer and closer. Um, what's interesting about this deal is that even with some kind of creative accounting here, it does still push the Dodgers uh, up to that last luxury tax threshold, I believe. And so that's at the point where it starts to cost them draft picks. And I'm not sure if we've ever seen a team get there since that that uh rule adjustment was made i might be wrong maybe the yankees pushed up there at some point or the red sox Mm. or something but i think this is the highest we've seen a team get in terms of luxury tax yeah i want to say the yankees or red sox had one at one point um gotten there but yeah it makes you wonder though like i think it's less about the money than it is about the draft pick issue like Mm -hmm. that seems like the dodgers would want to preserve that so they would at least want to get back under that 250 number so i'm still wondering if there's another move they might make to try to get under that Mm -hmm. um because you're only with the luxury tax you're only taxed at the portion that you go over if that makes sense so if if, if you the first thresholds at 210 if you spend 215 million you're only taxed on that 5 million you're not taxed on the entire 215 so yeah. it's the money is not a huge deal here it's the the draft pick penalties and how they stack up on each other if you go over the luxury tax in multiple consecutive years yeah um but getting back to turner you know a lot of people think oh that sounds like an overpay he's 36 he'll be 37 the next year but if you look at his numbers, he's still producing. He's basically a three-war player. And if you look at his 
um, you know, baseball savant stats, his ex-WOBA has been very high, consistently high for the last four years. 403, granted in a short season, but 382 before that, 391 before that, and 408 before that. I mean, he's been in the high threes, low four. You know, that is like really, really productive hitting. And that is always attractive. Um, and so even though, yes, he's aging and yes, his defense may start to falter as he's aging at third, um, that bat still seems like it's highly productive. And for that reason, we think it's a fair deal. I have him at 35.7 fair value for two, for two years. So it's slightly over 34, actually. But that gives me a little wiggle room, um, a little bit more injury risk. But um, it's it's right there. It's not that expensive for that productive of a player. So, And as other people ha- have pointed out, he's kind of the glue guy of the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that teammate that, you know, is always at the center of the attention and the party and everything. So... There's a clubhouse benefit too, so that it's sort of not really quantifiable, but the quantifiable stuff is right there. So I think it's a fine deal. Yeah, count me in that group that just constantly underrates Justin Turner for no real reason. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I have this image in my mind of, oh, he had a really low power year one of these recent years, and uh, an older guy like that isn't going to survive on just batting average and walks with his defense the way it is. But I'm kind of wrong there. He hasn't really had a a down power year. The closest you can say is 2018. And I believe that was the year that Kendall Graveman broke his wrist. If not, it was the year Mm -hmm. after that. And we know that wrist issues can take a little bit, a little while to heal and for that power to come back. But since then, he's been a very consistent hitter. Uh, You mentioned the defense isn't great, but it's passable enough that, you know, you expect them to have the DH next season. Maybe he shifts there. So, yeah, I don't you can't really find too much of a problem with this deal, even though on the surface, giving a 36 year old now a third baseman with poor defense, a two year deal is for this kind of money. It seems questionable, but it it works, I think. I mean, Mm -hmm. a three year deal might have raised another eyebrow for me, but this deal looks fine. All right, so now here's our perfect transition into the other incredibly active team of the last week. The Dodgers and the Athletics made a trade with each other. So the Dodgers really, being honest with you, I'm not sure who's left in their bullpen. I know they signed Blake Trinan. I know they have uh, they have Victor Gonzalez from the left side. They got a couple other names in there, but they have traded a lot of uh, bullpen pieces as of late, as have the Rays. But in this trade, the Dodgers sent Adam Kolarik and minor league outfielder Cody Thomas to Oakland in exchange for infielder Sheldon Noisy and right, uh, minor league right-handed pitcher uh, Gus Varland. So the values there are Choleric at 3.7 and Cody Thomas at 1.0. So that's 4.7 total headed to Oakland. And then Sheldon Noisy at 3.5, Gus Varland at 0.5. So that's 4 million headed to Los Angeles. And Sheldon Noisy every way except that he hits right-handed instead of left-handed in every other way he just feels like max muncie <laughs> and that's <laughs> they got they got similar bats similar profiles offensively um similar profiles defensively where he doesn't really have a home yet he's been kind of bouncing around the infield uh both similar kind of heavy set builds but surprisingly athletic despite those builds i believe they went to the same high school in texas or at least in the same city in texas something crazy like that <laughs> so and we we obviously know what happened with Max Muncie, and a lot of a lot of people are suggesting, oh, Noisy's another Muncie. They're going to do the same thing with him. That's not entirely likely. <laughs> I mean, Muncie was a fluke. It's just that Noisy never really got much of an opportunity in Oakland, 
and this was before the Justin Turner signing. So, and even with Justin Turner, um, the Dodgers needed some right-handed infield depth. So he's a nice pickup for them with some options. Varland is an interesting uh, right-handed pitcher who hasn't made it out of the lower minors yet, but that's because of a poorly timed injury and then the COVID shutdown. Uh, he was pitching incredibly well before the injury. And then Kolarik is a really solid lefty who, historically, he has been more of a loogie type, has struggled a little bit with righties, but he's been very effective. And he was very effective last year, even with the three-batter minimum rule. And then Cody Thomas, who, uh, from Eric Longenhagen's reporting, he he was late to baseball, really didn't start playing full-time until 2016. And for him to be at the level that he is at, despite being late to baseball, is impressive in itself. He's got power. He's a solid outfielder. Swings, swings and misses way too much, but could be a outfield platoon bat. So it's it's a, an even deal that fits both teams' needs really, really well. Yeah. So a couple of points here on Noisy. Um, you know, you'll still see him sometimes listed as a prospect, like in Baseball America's list, and I think even in Longenhagen's list. I'm not sure because he hasn't had enough service time at the major league level. But um, one of the things that we've noticed and we've talked about in previous podcasts is that you, you have to watch the front office moves because he actually he's been sort of, you know, um, on on the cusp of being a major leaguer for, for quite some time. There's a reason you got to think that he hasn't been given that shot to, you know, he or he hasn't earned that shot. Um, you know, last year when the A's needed a third baseman, when Chapman went down with an injury, he didn't get that shot. Um, you know, they went out and signed Jake Lamb instead. Now, granted, they needed a veteran, they thought, because they were in a playoff run, and so maybe they didn't trust Noisy. But there were signs that Noisy wasn't quite there. And so over time, what we're happening, what we do is we blend sort of their prospect value with their major league value. But embedded in that is some sort of eye-watching, spying, if you will, of what the front office is doing, whether they're confident mm-hmm. in them. So, so we saw a lack of confidence basically coming from the A's front office around Noisy. And, and as a result, his, his, in effect, he was burning the sort of major league clock. And so that lowered his value a little bit to where he was trading for a reliever. So he was not like a typical 45 prospect, which you might've seen him at, would be like eight or 9 million per position player. But he, he wasn't that because he'd already kind of slipped his, his stock had dropped. It's a long way of saying his stock have, have dropped over the last two years or so to where he's now traded for a reliever. That's point number one. Point number two is the A's have a tendency to do this with like lefty relievers in particular with control years that they like they did it a few years ago with ryan bookter they traded a couple of pieces away took a bad contract back and got and ryan bookter so and he turned out to be productive for them for a couple of years so i think it's a similar deal with choleric and they like that i think he is an upgrade over tj mcfarland who they had last year as a lefty um and i think they'll, he'll do well for them so i think it was a good deal for both sides yeah, to your first point there, if you just look at all the numbers that we have on Noisy, you see a guy who crushed it in the minor leagues, really never had a bad offensive season. He's a guy who started out, <clears throat> played a lot of shortstop in the national system. He, he had come over to Oakland in the Jesus Lazardo Sean Doolittle trade. Um, so he played some shortstop in the minors, both with the Nationals and with Oakland. Settled in at third base. Obviously, he was never going to play there long-term with Matt Chapman in front of him. Um, During his debut, he played at at second base, and he was a passable second baseman. The defense was fine. His bat was kind of iffy in the major leagues, but it was a very small sample. Uh, But then, as you you pointed out, he wasn't called upon when Chapman went down last season. And there were reports that he just wasn't looking right at the alternate camp. So when you factor that in, when you factor in that he's only getting older, he's a little bit post-prospect age, and part of that is the lost minor league season, but even then he was an older prospect. He's 26. 
Um, you see a guy where there's there's obvious value here. The bat, he's always hit at every level. You figure he'll hit some in the major leagues. And he's defensively versatile. And you see some upside there, obviously. There's a lot of raw power you can get into there with just looking at his body type. Um, but there are very clear red flags. And as you mentioned, one of, the, one of the clearest is that the A's haven't turned to him in times of need when they had first the opening at second base, the issues at second base before they traded for Tommy Listella, and then the injury at third base. So very clear that his value has dropped. We call that the uh, Luis Arias rule. <laughs> <laughs> and then one last point I want to make here that'll kind of transition into some of these other athletics moves is that their 40-man roster is getting very crowded. Yeah, And they have a lot of players like Cody Thomas. They have a ton of upper minors outfield depth. And these aren't all the flashiest guys. There's a couple that are pretty interesting. A couple that are really, that are beyond the the uh, Luis Urias years. I'm looking at Dustin Fowler in particular there where he's, I don't know why he's on the roster anymore. They, we haven't yeah. seen him in a couple of years and he hasn't done anything impressive in the minors or anything. Uh, but they have this glut now. And they need to clear some spots. I have a feeling it could just be a couple of DFAs, but I have a feeling we could see another trade in the next next day or two as they try and clear room for some of these signings that we're, that we're getting to here. Um, and outfielders like Thomas might be one of the most obvious spots that they can trade from. Yeah, I mean, they've got Sky Bolt and Seth Brown in addition to Fowler and Luis Pereira. These are all lefty outfielders, and they picked mm-hmm. up Kai, Kai Tom as a Rule mm-hmm. 5 guy. Who who knows if they'll stick or not. So, yeah, there's clearly a surplus there, and they were basically just throwing spaghetti at the wall there to see which one of them would stick. So, you know, they're not all going to stick. So, with a 40-man roster crunch, that's the first place you would look, I would imagine. They've got a little bit of chaff, too, on the sort of – pitcher depth side like Paul Blackburn may get moved you know there's not much value there at all actually yeah so you know a couple guys like that um, yeah and, and Cody Thomas probably isn't the guy most likely to get moved considering yeah. a they just traded for him on purpose and b he's not on the 40 man yet yeah um, but he just gives them more insurance if they do move a Skybolt or whoever yeah right okay so transitioning into some of their other moves here they they already had what looked like a decent ish bullpen, you know, that you could squint at it and say, yes, they took a step back here, uh, but they still got some talent here. And then they just said, no, that's not good enough for us. We're going to make it just as good as last season, if not better. So that's, <laughs> we're going to go in kind of reverse order here. The biggest move they made was signing Trevor Rosenthal. So this came out of really nowhere. And, and that's something that's kind of happened with all of Oakland's moves this offseason is none of these guys that they've signed or these trades that they've made, they haven't been rumored for weeks and weeks leading up to them or even for the days leading up to them. They all just kind of happened. <laughs> and that's how this one was. There was a tweet that the Brewers and uh, and Trevor Rosenthal were uh, were having mutual interest, having discussions about a contract. And then 10 minutes later, John Heyman reports that the A's have signed Rosenthal. <laughs> so he'll he'll get $11 million. It's not a straight $11 million, which is to be expected. With, the A's had to get kind of creative with some of their budgetary restraints, the, restraints this offseason. It's heavily backloaded. He'll earn $3 million in 2021, another $3 million in 2022, and $5 million in 2023. Um, but those are those are deferrals, so he will still be a free agent after the season. Uh, he chose this offer over reportedly other multi-year offers that he had because of the opportunity to close in Oakland. 
as well as uh, to kind of establish himself even further than hit the market next off season and say, hey, it wasn't just 20 good innings in 2020. It was 20 good innings in 2020 plus a solid season here for a competitive team. Now give me the multi-year deal I want. So makes a lot of sense for him. Makes sense for the A's. He's not Liam Hendricks, but he's the closest thing they were going to get within their price range to Liam Hendricks. He throws even harder. He misses even more bats. Obviously, the track record isn't there. The control isn't there. But he's about as good as they could have done here and is about as sure of a thing as they could have added to the back end of their bullpen. And it just it just looks like a really natural fit on both sides, even if it was one that kind of surprised everyone. Yeah. I mean, from a baseball point of view, it's great for the A's. They really needed to replace Liam Hendricks. And that was the one thing I think their bullpen was lacking because they were like, yeah, Jake Dick Diekman, he's he could close, you know, but he wasn't really an established closer, um, even though he had a good year last year. Um, so now they've got an established closer who was lights out last year. He had a 210 X Woba, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the the knock on him was he had that Tommy John surgery a couple of years ago and he came back and couldn't find the strike zone and everyone thought he was done. And then the Royals gave him a minor league deal and he came back and good for them. You know, they got something out of it. And they traded him to San Diego and, and, you know, he had a great year. So now he's back. And oftentimes you'll see like the second year back from Tommy John is even better than the first year back. So, um, you know, and so now he's fully recovered. And so that's what the A's are banking on. I think this is an overpay. Looking at our model, we have his fair value at seven and they're paying 11. But if you if you do the net present value calculation using like a 3% inflation rate, it comes to around at like 10.6. So it's a mm-hmm. three and a half-ish million overpay. Maybe they decided they needed that because they're going for it. Which is another point, because everyone thought they weren't going for it all year. They did nothing. And then suddenly there's a flurry of moves in February when, like, it, you know, okay, now they are going for it. So yeah. <laughs> stop those Matt Chapman rumors. Oh, hang on. He's yeah. staying. <laughs> yeah, they are known to make February moves, but I'm, I've never seen it like this, where they yeah. just make all of their... They, they made the two Rule 5 picks back at, during the Rule 5 draft in December. And they made a couple of waiver claims slash trades for Nick Turley and Cole Irvin and whoever else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and then decided, okay, yeah, oh, it's the offseason. We can make ourselves better. Let's do that in literally a two-week span, <laughs> right up, right ahead of spring training. Yeah, so, exactly. Now, to be fair, <clears throat> the Chris Davis, getting rid of the Chris Davis contract and, and that whole swap with the Rangers, mm-hmm. with the Rangers giving them 13.5. So they not only um, – you know, that's where they got the money from because they're on mm-hmm. still on a tight budget, as you can see with the backloading of, of Rosenthal's mm-hmm. contract. So, but still, um, you know, that's suddenly they had to do that before they could sign fires and make these other moves. Um, so now they've been pretty much, I think they're pretty much done, but, but yeah. this was and I think, the icing, icing on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I think they were waiting on Marcus Simeon to sign before they pulled off the Chris Davis move because they would yeah. have preferred to have. Uh, Semyon is their starting shortstop. But it depends what reporting you're, you're believing and what exactly theory you're believing on that, but we're not getting into that. One theory I have seen about this, uh, and it's just it's literally just in the replies to Ken Rosenthal's tweet about the contract specifics here, is that the deferments might be better tax-wise for Rosenthal. Mm-hmm. I'm no no accountant. I'm, taxes are, are as confusing to me as they are to everyone else here. Uh, but this is suggesting that maybe if he's living outside of California in 22 and 20, 2022 and 2023, yeah. that he won't have to pay the California tax rate on those deferrals. I would imagine that's how it would work. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but yeah. um, that, yeah. w- that would make some sense for sure. 
I, I, I know I'm not an accountant either, but I've experienced this a little bit. Where you work is what yeah. determines the tax rate, right? So if, if it's in fact true that he won't be working in California, uh, wherever he goes next, um, yeah, then there is a slight benefit to that. So good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now we're going to lump these next two bullpen moves together because they happened like within five minutes of each other. <laughs> so Oakland re-signed Yusmer Petit to a one-year contract, $2.55 million guaranteed. And they also picked up Sergio Romo, one-year contract, $2.25 million guaranteed. And so that's just a couple of... Petit's a guy that's been in Oakland for a few years now, and they love him there. Bob Melvin loves him. He's been kind of the fireman type there, comes in in the fourth inning with the bases loaded, gets you out of it. <laughs> or he can pitch the seventh in high leverage. And now he, he took a bit of a step back in 2020, and that's part of why he's only getting $2.5 million instead of maybe a, a higher one-year deal. Um, and he's getting up there in age. But he's he's one of their favorites, and he's a reliable guy, and he's not even the the fourth best reliever in this bullpen now. He might be like sixth or seventh best, and so if that's the guy that you have sixth or seventh in your bullpen, you're more than happy with it. And then Sergio Romo, he's literally never been bad. His slider was as good as ever in 2020. He continues to just be so reliable despite despite having one real standout pitch, no velocity, whatever knock you want to bring on him. Um, and again, that's just really interesting right-handed depth in that bullpen. And they have so many different looks now when you consider a guy like Rosenthal, who throws a little bit more over the top, he throws gas. You consider guys like Romo and Petit that throw softer from the right side. Romo's is from that funky arm angle. Caleric's from a funky arm angle from the left side. Mm -hmm. Jake Diekman throws from first base, but he also <laughs> throws 98 miles an hour from first uh -huh. base. Uh -huh. they, they're building a little bit of what we saw on all of the playoff broadcasts about the Tampa Bay Rays last offseason, where they had all those different arm angles overlaid all over each other for their bullpen. They're building one of those, and it's, mm -hmm. it's really interesting how they're doing it for the most part on the cheap. Yeah, and Romo and Petit are both, you know, fair value. They're both, you know, as you pointed out, getting older. Romo's 38, um, and he's still got that slider, but, you know, he's worth 2.2, .2 and that's what they're paying him. Um, Petit is, you know, what is he, 36, 37 now? Um, but he's worth about $3 million. They're paying him 2.5. I think he might have incentives there as well, so that should even out. Um, but, and also the clubhouse is, I mean, the guys on the roster say he's great. He's one of the leaders of the team. I right. love him. So there's that sort of extra unquantifiable benefit. There's another glue guy basically for the team that kind of holds everybody together. So I think it was a smart deal. And, you know, they, they obviously found some spare change in the couch cushions. And so after the Davis deal, so they're spreading it around. Good for them. And that's a really under, underestimated aspect of all of these moves really is that, you know, the A's were one of these first teams to be callous and say clubhouse chemistry doesn't matter as much is the production on the field, money ball, market inefficiency, yeah. But <laughs> you look at all of these moves, Trevor Rosenthal, by all accounts, is a great guy. Sergio Romo, everyone has loved him wherever he's gone. Petit, and then even this last guy we're going to get to, Mitch Moreland, he's got very positive clubhouse mm -hmm. reports. So it's mm -hmm. they're creating as good of an environment as they can for a team that let Marcus Simeon walk, a big clubhouse guy, and traded Chris Davis, another big clubhouse guy. So And Elvis Andrews, who they got back for Davis, is a great clubhouse guy. So it's it's seeming like they're doing what they can to keep spirits up, even if that's not necessarily their priority. All these guys are contributors on the field first, and that's kind of, you know, that's maybe the third or fourth best thing about them is their, their clubhouse um, ability. But it's, it's worth pointing out for sure. 
Now, it's an interesting point, and I don't want to go too far down this road, but I have noticed that guys who have reputations for not-so-good clubhouse either are, are rather consistently underpaid mm-hmm. or they don't get deals at all. Like Yasiel Puig, why hasn't he gotten a deal? It's one of the reasons is he's got a negative reputation for being a, a not-so-good clubhouse guy. Roberto Asuna, he's got issues off the field. He's still out there. No one's signing mm-hmm. him. There's a few other guys you can go you know, down, down the line that, that have issues that are not getting signed. And so it makes you wonder if teams are sort of now quantifying this or just staying away from saying, you know what, he's not worth the trouble. And um, it's becoming, I think, a little bit more of a thing where the positive guys, I'm not certain they're getting – more than they would normally would but it's more like the negative guys are are not getting deals um or getting severely underpaid like only when they have to pay them yeah and the cynic can look at some of these situations osuna in particular and say it might not necessarily be necessarily be the clubhouse as much as as it is the pr hit yeah (laughs) roberto osuna can definitely help a team on the field once he gets healthy um, but he's also kind of a very not good person who's done some very not good things. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Do I have to say allegedly? I'm not sure if I have to say allegedly. I didn't follow that saga closely <laughs> enough to know if uh, if he was charged or not. But it's it's interesting there because like maybe I don't think we've seen necessarily reports of him being horrible in the clubhouse specifically. But it's it's clear that teams don't want to touch that with a ten foot pole after everything that happened in Houston. Yeah, I mean it's just sort of a culture issue, I think. Yeah, that you that's know, a that's a culture. good broad way to put it. The teams are willing to maybe keep Petit around a year longer than they would otherwise to to give him that extra year and say, well, we'll risk it for this one, see if he's still productive for us, because even yeah. if he's not, he's going to be good with your young pitchers and just keeping everyone happy. Yeah. But even with a guy where you say, hey, he's got some talent left in Osuna, it might not be worth the risk there. Yeah. Right. Okay, so then very briefly, let's just touch on Mitch Moreland here. Also gets $2.25 million on a one-year deal here. Uh, he's 35. He hit very well last season between the Red Sox and the Padres. Um, I was a little surprised when his option wasn't picked up by the Padres. Turns out it was a good move because the DH did not remain in the National League and they wouldn't have had anywhere to put him. But the A's do have a DH spot that's wide open after trading Chris Davis. Um, I kind of expected them to shuffle some of those guys around in that spot, using it as a day off for some of their outfielders, or using it to um, to, to give Seth Brown and some of these other lefty outfielders that we talked about um, a bit of an opportunity. They decided to take the more guaranteed option, add some left-handed thump into a pretty right-handed lineup. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, he's 35. He's a, a kind of a one-dimensional power hitter with some on-base ability, not necessarily standout on-base ability. Um, so that's why he's only getting $2.2 million here. But there's there's some value here, and it's a decent move by them to continue shoring, out, shoring up the uh, edges of the roster here. Yeah, exactly. This is sort of um, like they, they got Robbie Grossman on the cheap two years ago. Mm-hmm you know, undervalued and in February, you know, kind of picked him up because he was still sitting there. So I think this is similar. Uh, So on paper, we have Moreland at uh, 3 million AFB and and his salaries, even if he makes his incentive would be two and a half. So there's, there's, there's some value there for the A's. So it's a smart move from that point of view. And keep in mind, they got nothing from Chris Davis out of the DH spot last year. Absolutely nothing, unfortunately. Um, So, and they needed a left-handed bat. So this is going to be an upgrade regardless, even if he just does the league minimum, it's still going to be better than what Davis gave them. Um, And for two and a half million, you know, so that's a good deal. 
Um, I do think, though, they'll probably sort of work in, like against a left-handed pitcher, you might see Piscotty in that role, mm-hmm. and they might move guys around in the outfield a little bit, you know, because Piscotty's right field defense is not so good. So, like, maybe they become sort of like platoon, platoon partners there on the DH role. Um, something like that, we'll see. Um, it's total speculation, but, you know, Moreland's mm-hmm. going to get the majority of the bats there, and I think it's good value. And that's if Piscotty's still around. Again, this is total <laughs> speculation. We we discussed earlier how they might move from that outfield fringe to solve this roster problem. I also could see them finding a package for Piscotty with some prospects, eating some of that salary, getting him elsewhere. That just makes the roster look a bit, bit better. I could see them moving Canna, although it feels a little bit late in the offseason for that, again, to kind of free up some money, free up the roster spot. Um, so I think those are two other options they could take. They're not the most likely, but I think we'll see a resolution to this within the next few days. Yeah, we will. I, I strongly doubt that they would move Canna because he's mm-hmm. so important to them. Uh, he's, he's another glue guy, I think, especially in that lineup. So right. he could play anywhere. So I think they love him. I, it's more likely to be either Piscotti or some of the fringy guys we talked about. Yeah, I agree. Or even just, like we said, DFAs of Blackburn, Fowler, and whoever yeah. else. Yeah, right. Okay, so we're at about an hour, and we have <laughs> the entire rest of the league that isn't the A's and Dodgers to get to. <laughs> so let's let's start flying here. So the Mariners brought back James Paxton. That was cool. <laughs> so yeah. they, they signed him to a one-year, $8.5 million deal uh, with bonuses that can get it up to 10 mil. He returns home. They Obviously, they love him there. Uh, it's it's we've had a lot of these this off season. We'll get to even a couple more of them. These kind of homecomings for guys. I wonder if if 2020 and COVID and everything made guys more sentimental, or if it's just kind of a coincidence. But he's back there, and that seems like a really awesome upside play for them. I mean, it's a one year deal. There's never such thing as a bad year deal, one year deal. But especially if it's a guy like this, big fan favorite, and with the upside that he has, if they turn him around, then that's one of the best trade pieces at the deadline. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a fair deal. We have him at 10.4 fair value and he's getting 10 if he hits his incentives, which I hope he will. Um, so, you know, a little bit of a value there, but I mean, the, the big unquantifiable thing with him is his health. You know, yeah. he's just had issue after issue and his track record doesn't exactly instill confidence. Like he's going to stay on the field for 30 starts, you know, maybe you mm-hmm. get 20 out of him. So you got to have to play it that way and hope for the best. Um, if he were a 30 part start guy, I mean, he's got the stuff, you know, and when he's on, he's dominant. He, he should be at least a 20 dollar pitcher, but He's not because of that injury risk. And, and we're not doctors. We don't know how exactly how to quantify that injury risk. So take it a best guess. We think it's a, it's about right in terms of fair value there. Uh, but I, I will say good for the Mariners because they traded him away two years ago. And now they got him back and as well as Justice Sheffield and the other guys they got. So have your cake and eat it too, Mariners. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, he and Sheffield will be in the rotation together. And then the other yeah. two pieces of that deal, Dom Thompson Williams and Eric Swanson are both still in the organization. So that's, <laughs> it, it hasn't, none of those guys have necessarily developed into superstars and it's not like Paxton is still a superstar and now they're signing him to this big mega deal. Uh, that's not what's happening here. But it is it is still a fun little thing there, yeah, that they trade him, get him back, and they, they really reap all of the spoils of that. Yeah, and, and, you know, one thing on the Mariners, obviously they're a rebuilding team, and no one's really expecting them to compete, but you never know. They made they were a little sneaky last year. They also picked up Rafael Montero as a closer, and now they've got Paxton, so it's not like they're punting. Like, they're thinking maybe they've got an outside shot or a wild card, so don't sleep on them. 
yeah, and that's a division where the Rangers pretty clearly are either the same or worse as they were last year. The Astros are pretty clearly worse. And then you can debate about the Angels and the A's, but it's not like either of them made significant improvements where they're now suddenly the favorites. This is a division that's still very undecided. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the pot, or excuse me, the Mariners, maybe they hit their timeline a year too early. They have a Jared Kelnick come up earlier than expected and start tearing the cover off the ball and he leads them to ending their playoff drought i would as somebody who roots for one of the teams in that division don't want that but as somebody (laughs) who has the utmost sympathy for the mariners and their fans that would just be a cinderella story for the ages especially if paxton's leading the way yes and then then they'll they'll trade for felix hernandez at the deadline right (laughs) exactly no i mean they're going to be really good maybe in 2022 certainly in 2023 with Kellenic mm-hmm. and Julio Rodriguez and they got a bunch of good talent coming up so watch out for them later mm-hmm. all right Cubs another homecoming here signed Jake Arietta, and this one was shocking to me and I'm interested to hear how much of an overpay this was he's being guaranteed after a pretty awful couple seasons with the Phillies he's being guaranteed six million dollars yeah um He's worth 3.8, according to our model. <clears throat> so they're overpaying by 2.2. All I can figure is maybe he's like, hey, welcome back. And they know him yeah. well enough. They can sort of, you know, hope for a resurgence or know how to tweak him or whatever it is. I mean, he's 35 now, so it's not like there's that much to tweak. But, you know, maybe they can, uh, maybe they've got some magic they can work with him. But it is a little bit of an overpay, as everyone seems to agree on. When he was on, he was phenomenal, and maybe he just blew everyone away at that showcase. I mean, we did hear positive things from the showcase, but you almost never hear negative things from anybody's showcase, so you got to yeah. take those with a big old grain of salt. Yeah. But, I mean, they've seen him pitch, and we haven't, so <laughs> maybe maybe there is something there. But as it looks right now, it does seem it's a bit more money than I would have paid. Yeah, I mean, he's a, at this point of his career, most reasonable people would say he's a, he's a number five innings eater, and that's mm-hmm. it. And that's $3.8 million is even, that's the most you'd want to pay for, for a guy like that at this point. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> for sure. Okay, speaking of reliable innings eaters, the race signed Rich Hill. <laughs> yeah. Anything but a reliable innings eater, that was a joke. But <laughs> this I like this move a lot for them. And uh, we can go ahead and lump these in together. They also signed Colin McHugh. Um, that, that's an interesting couple of arms with some real upside here. So uh, Hill will get one year, two and a half million. McHugh will get one year, 1.8 million, uh, both on major league deals. And so that kind of rounds out a very upside play type of rotation between the two of them, between Michael Waka, Chris Archer. Uh, they just keep adding these guys where they're not all going to click, but when one of them does click, they're going to get some real talent out of out of that spot in the rotation. So a 41-year-old has upside. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> he had, when's the last time Rich Hill was bad on a baseball field? No, I totally get it. And, yeah. and I, I, I agree. I, I have never heard of such a thing as a 41-year-old with upside. <laughs> and he throws but he, 90 but, miles an hour. 
<laughs> no, he's got that huge looping curve. Which yes. Is just a thing of majestic beauty it's when it's gorgeous. on. Gorgeous. <laughs> and but he's forty-one. People, come on. Mm-hmm. And but you know he's had blister problems and on and on. But um, so factoring in the age and the injury risk and the the, the decline issues and stuff. I mean, this is we talked in a previous podcast about how once they get to a certain age, our model just sort of runs out of like uh, we don't see forty-one-year-old starters anymore. So like, how do you quantify the injury risk there? So but but doing our best and using the closest comp we actually get to exactly 2.5 as fair value so that's it's right on but i but even that like you, you there's a back of your mind thought you think well rich hill when he's on man it's mm-hmm. you know two and a half million is nothing for a couple of starts that's that's the value right there so yeah maybe they piece together a few starts of rich hill and a few starts of if McHugh can come back and Waka can find the strike zone, who knows? <laughs> you know, that's a patchwork, is what it is. An archer, who knows what you're going to get from him at this point? Maybe there's something there that he's recapturing. He had shoulder surgery. Who knows what happens after that? Because that's always bad news. So, but it's total. But yeah, there's some upside there because he's Chris, Ar- Chris Archer. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you, we've talked in the past about the Yankees putting together sort of a patchwork of guys who are like Kluber and Tyone or coming off lost years, and but yet they're still Kluber and Tyone, and they've got upside. So it's a similar sort of, in a lower key way, the Rays are, are taking the same approach with like four or five guys and hoping for the best. It's the bargain bin approach to the bargain bin approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but can't you can't you just see a really good tandem here between Hill and McHugh? I mean, Hill averaged less than five innings a start. We know he doesn't go deep into games, nor does he stay healthy for long stretches. No. Um, that's his biggest knock here, but he is very good when he is pitching. So can't you see four inning, three or four innings out of Hill turning into three or four innings out of McHugh, who's been a swing man for the majority of his career? He had some injuries. I believe he opted out of last season uh, due to COVID but also was battling injuries during that time. So he's had a year off. He's probably not built up all the way to be a full-time starter. So the two of them kind of piggybacking could be really interesting for them. And and we know that they like to get creative with how they use their pitchers. Exactly. I was just going to say that. Yeah. So they're both three or four inning guys, basically. Yeah. I think tandem is the right way to go. They may not be in the same game all the time, but that's Mm -hmm. probably what you would expect from them. So yeah, they'll piece it together. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, the league continues to allow the Rays to house like 30 pitchers on their active roster. I don't, I don't know when they're going to get caught for it. I, I've noticed it with with the Dodgers as well. They have like a, a 36 man roster in the big leagues. I, I don't know how the league keeps letting teams get yeah. away with this. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> you know the Rays, MLB's MLB's sweethearts. <laughs> uh, one last move here, much smaller in nature. The Rays re-signed Oliver Drake to a big league uh, big league deal 775,000 uh he's been there for a while and he's been very successful for them but was injured mm-hmm. in 2020 and wasn't even on the playoff roster um he was dfa'd cleared waivers and they brought him back he's still going to be rehabbing the injury at the start of the season but that's just bringing back a guy that ha- has had success for your organization a guy that you like and a guy that likes you and no risk here whatsoever yeah, and he's cheap. We have his fair value at 0.9. He's getting 0.8, basically. So, you know, that's fine. Um, he does have, I, I can't remember, is it a slider? There's some, he's got one pitch that is his out pitch. That is, it's his splitter, right? It's a splitter. Okay. Yeah, and that, yeah. he. I think he just discovered it later in his career. And mm-hmm. they, you know, the Rays, you know, the Rays, they're going to do it with Jeffrey Springs or whoever, too, the next time. You know, <laughs> they're going to find that one pitch and milk it. With the, and That's what they did with Drake. So, and, and it's on the cheap, too. So, yeah. even better. 
And he's got severe and strange and incredible reverse platoon splits that are like normally reverse platoon splits. You don't believe them. They they usually even out over time. I mm-hmm. remember Mark Canna started his career with reverse platoon split, mm-hmm. reverse platoon splits, and uh, they've since faded away because that's just what happens. It's usually a small sample size thing, but this is legit with Drake. It's because of his funky delivery. It's because change-up splitter types tend to have uh, a bit more success against opposite-handed batters, and it just makes him one of the more interesting relievers in the game. So I can I hope he gets healthy and gets back into it because he's really fun. Mm-hmm. Okay, and one last reunion here is the Phillies signing Brad Miller. This isn't quite the same type of reunion, uh, but he does re- he does return to that team that he was with in 2020. He gets a year and three and a half million. He was a really impressive bench bat for them. Uh, it seems like that's what he's kind of developed into. Is he's got some versatility. He's not a great defensive player at any of those spots, but he can hop around, fill in wherever he needs to. And he's really found found some power over the last couple of years, um, especially in Philly. So that's it's a nice bench pickup for them. Yeah, and he's another one of these second basemen who is underpaid because there's so many second basemen. Mm-hmm. You know, he can play other positions, but that's kind of his primary. Um, so you knock a discount off. Like, on paper, his field value should be 4.5, but with the discount, it's 3.6, and he's getting 3.5 because that's just sort of the market rate. Nobody's paying for second basemen, even productive ones. Um, so, you know, good for the Phillies. Seems to be happy there. So, um, yeah, and he'll be productive for them. And I, I think they're going to they're going to use him a lot more because they didn't really have, like, you know, I'm not sure what's going on with Kingery. He hasn't really produced, and so like I think mm-hmm. Miller's going to get a lot more at bats than people think he will. It's going to be a fluid situation there. For yeah, sure. yeah. All right. So now, earlier we discussed the Trevor Rosenthal signing. He was with the Padres last season. I know Padres fans wanted to bring him back, uh, but it seems like he was a little bit priced out for all the other money that they spent on every other position on the roster. So instead, they made a couple lower-profile moves. They brought in Mark Melanson. He'll be guaranteed $3 million on a one-year deal. Uh, It does have a mutual option for the second year. He's just always been uh, very reliable outside of, uh, I think he had one or two off years with the uh, with the Giants after signing that huge contract there, um, he he was a, he was another one of our misses in the past as far as trades go when he was traded from the Giants to the Braves for a solid prospect return despite still being very expensive on a, mm-hmm. on that big deal. Um, but he's always been at least a middle relief arm, if not a late innings type guy. And so he's a nice addition for them. And they also signed a bit more of an upside play in Keone Kila. Um, I believe I believe the terms there they're not on this page I believe it was something in the range of 1.2 million guaranteed with like a couple million in incentives uh, so it's very much going to be based on how he performs how much playing time he gets uh, he, he does have high leverage experience in the past he also has potentially some makeup issues from his time with the pirates hard to tell if that's legitimate or if it's just he was on the pirates and in the same bullpen as Felipe Vasquez and that's probably not good for your uh for your makeup for your mental health but yeah so they had a couple real talented uh middle relief potentially late inning arms here on the cheap i I like both of these moves for them so are the padres doing anything this offseason has anyone noticed i i don't i haven't heard much has (laughs) jp preller been been sleeping in or something Ah, yeah (laughs) uh, this is the icing on the cake i mean let's just sign two really you know, good relievers, solid relievers, just to make things even more ridiculous to this offseason we've had. Mm-hmm. So good for them. Um, yeah. Um, and Melanson, 
you know, it was coming cheap. And but we have it right around fair value at three, given his age, and yeah. you know, and he's been in decline. He's not the same quite the same as he was, but you know, solid enough. Not sure if he'd be closing. He might be. It depends how things shake out. Kila could be if he brings it back. So. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, they've yeah. still got some other good pieces there. Stammen and Hill and Pagan, Pomeranz. Pomeranz mm-hmm. was, you know, he, he's still there. So that's a solid bullpen. And there's really, it's hard to find a weakness with that team. I mean, come on. They got all the starters. They already had enough of a solid alignment, lineup and they added even more. I mean, that's just ridiculous, that pen, mm-hmm. that team. So what are you going to do next? I mean, that's it. <laughs> and, it's they still, be... and they still have their top prospects coming. They didn't right. trade Gore or Abrams. You know, I mean, like, holy. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's going to be so much fun to watch them and yeah. the Dodgers duke it out this year and for the next, like, decade or so. Yeah. <laughs> as long as Tatis is under, <laughs> under contract. Yeah, right. Uh, okay. Now, the Mets signed Kevin Pillar, and it's weird, and I don't understand it at all. Um, we just talked about how they signed Albert Almora, who is Juan Lagares, who is Jake Marisnik, who is <laughs> whoever. Uh-huh. But they signed they signed Almora. That was their choice. Uh, and they signed him pretty cheap, and I was like, okay, that's a decent move. And then they gave Kevin Pillar more money to effectively probably do the same thing. <laughs> um, it's It's a creative contract. It's a $5 million guarantee could be 10 million dollar over two years um it, it's it's kind of a it's not a mutual option it's a player option or club option um so it seems like it's pretty likely he'll be there for that second year it's just a matter of how expensive he'll be yeah um but i yeah i mean i get that they needed some defense in the outfield but like is pilar really the guy there his defense has regressed significantly over the years so let's just run the numbers. I have, we have them at 7.1 million fair value against 6.5. I think that's on a two-year basis. Um, um, so it's fair. It's, in fact, it's a slight underpay. But, you know, the thing with the Mets is, you know, Nemo's not really a center fielder, right? Mm-hmm. So they're thinking, okay, well, let's move. Let's, let's, well. They can't move Nimmo to left because we're going to put Dominic Smith. And they don't have a DH, so they're, we're going to put Dominic Smith. And that's their – or J.D. Davis. So they've, mm-hmm. they've got the problem with, like, too many corner guys and not and not a true center fielder. So they're thinking, okay, let's get some – at least depth. And so they go Almora. But then, like, is Pilar overkill? That's sort of the reaction. Like, how are you going to find playing time for these guys? And mm-hmm. is Pilar's defense even worth it? Like, what is he really offering you at this point? So I don't know. I share your sort of befuddlement on that. I mean, from a value standpoint on paper, it's fine. But from a playing time standpoint, it's just a depth move was all I can figure. You know, you got to look at the shortened season last year. And now they got 162 games this year. Not everyone's going to stay healthy. So a good culture, a good team is going to be deep like the Dodgers approved. So you're thinking, OK, well, let's let's make sure we have a strong bench. And because those guys are going to get playing time. So one way or the other. It's now interesting. Yeah. I think today the average A's fan is happier with the A's offseason than the average Mets fan is with the Mets offseason. And the Mets got Francisco freaking Lindor and Carlos Carrasco. But it's just the expectations were so wildly different. Yeah. A's fans are used to their team acting on the cheap. But then all of a sudden in these last few weeks, they, they decided to make some moves. It looked for a while like they weren't going for it. But then they said, no, we are. We were just taking our time here. And so they've they've kind of built the club up back to at least similar levels to where it was at the end of the season. Whereas the Mets have obviously gotten so much better between Trevor May, Carrasco, Lindor, McCann, 
even Almora and Pilar, they're going to help a little bit at least. Uh, Aaron Loop. And they've made all these moves, but the problem was they had the expectation of so much more. They had the expectation of Real Muto and yeah. Lindor and Springer, and that just hasn't happened. And so... Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. It, it's, it's a weird... It's a weird shape for an offseason to take where expectations are high. They miss out on a couple guys. They make one really big, awesome move. Everyone loves them for it. And then they just kind of went silent. And it's, it's I, I forget who said it. I believe it was Billy Bean who said that if, you, um, if you're rational on free agents, you're always going to finish in third. You're never going to sign sign your guy if you stick within ration. I don't remember if that was Bean or Friedman. It was no, it's Friedman. It, it's okay, Friedman. 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 Of the Dodgers, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, if you're rational in every single move, you're going to finish in third in every single move. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And, and that seems like what's happened with the Mets here. Like, there mm-hmm. weren't too many contenders who actually could have added Lindor and had the incentive to do so. So they kind of had their – they had an easy one there, kind of a layup. But Springer, Real Muto, they decided not to – add that extra year or that extra whatever million dollars and kind of let them pass and they made a strong effort at Bauer but they didn't push themselves above and beyond there and so they missed out on all of those guys and they're left with a solid offseason they got a lot better but it's with a fan base that had its expectations through the roof they're disappointed yeah yeah missing out on Bauer I think was kind of a big one for that fan base because they were so close and there were early reports that maybe they were getting him and then they didn't um, to add to the fact that they didn't get Real Muto. So, I mean, the expectations were, to be fair, they were unrealistic at the beginning of the offseason. But mm-hmm. you had an owner that had plenty of money. You had the Cano situation where, like, hey, we don't have to pay him. We're saving for <laughs> So, like, let's go. Let's go shopping. Everyone was crazy a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And that's fans. And, um, and But then they had, you know, Sandy Alderson and, and his team were like, no, let's be realistic. And, like, let's McCann and let's be let's be let's, let's stick to the ground don't you know but then mm-hmm. what happened in the offseason was you know they saw the Padres making all these great moves the Dodgers go way over the luxury tax you know and and now they're like oh <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. we were too rational and now the fan base is like what you still don't have a fourth and fifth starter and what are you gonna do and now you're mm-hmm. Not even going to get out of Rizzi or Taiwan Walker. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> like, it's it's better, but it's not sexy anymore, you know? So, yeah. It's, and, and, yeah. <laughs> and once you factor in the off, uh, off-field issues, the off-season as a whole just kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth for the Mets. Yeah. But I, I believe that will be very quickly erased. Once they get back out onto the field, they'll, they'll probably sign one of Odorizzi or Walker. I'd be pretty surprised if they didn't. And they'll get back out on the field and start playing in spring, and they'll get to watch Francisco Lindor. They'll get to watch James, uh, yeah, James McCann, and all these concerns will kind of wash away there because they'll realize we have a very talented team here. We added some really fun players, and we're going to compete. Yeah, but to your point, I mean, there was a lot of – chaos in that front office right first they didn't have a front office when you know back in october right. or whatever it was november and then and then alderson comes in and he's 70 years old and he's not used to working the phone so much as he's more like the the emeritus senior executive type mm-hmm. and so then he needed somebody so he hires jared porter well first of all it took him a while to find anybody and yeah. then he finally finds porter but then porter has his issues and then and he's out but then he finds zach scott who's a buddy of porter's then he comes in and he's like it's it's like who's who's on the phone here and who's working the strategy like mm-hmm. it's been kind of chaotic right so i'm sure that's a factor here <clears throat> and i do recall one of the free agents it might have been brad hand it was somebody 
uh, where reports came out that Porter was kind of the point man on him. Mm-hmm. And he, he signed right in that kind of in-between period where Porter was gone, and they were trying to figure out what they were doing. So maybe maybe it did cost them that. Um, yeah. So just a just a weird time for them. Okay, we have we have a hand. We have six, seven, seven free agent signings left. I'm going to list them off real quick, quick hits. You're going to give me one line on each of them, unless you have more to say. You can add it, but we're we're just going to fly through these. All right. Sound good? Okay, cool. Giants sign Aaron Sanchez, one-year, $4 million deal with $2.5 million in incentives. Overpay. I don't think – and he hasn't – he had one good season, what, was 2017, and he's been hurt ever since, and maybe he's – you know, it's a gamble, you know, but $4 million is not that much. I know that's not one sentence, but uh, <laughs> I think it's a bit of an overpay given, like, he hasn't pitched in three years. Yeah, he's still only 28. He's got the upside, and – the Giants have some money to throw around, so yeah, a bit of an overpay, but hey, it, it could really work for him, so yeah. right. I'm not going to fault him too heavy for it. Yeah. Okay, Yankees signed Justin Wilson. We still don't know how many years or how much money. Very strange. One sentence, go. Solid, solid middle, middle relief guy. Won't won't be expensive. Fine. They squeeze him in. Fine. All right, perfect. Diamondbacks signed Estrubel Cabrera. One year, $1.75 million, with another million in incentives. Utility guy, old guy. They need somebody. To, they need a human being out there. <laughs> There's not much going on in Arizona. Fine. <laughs> going to bounce around for the next 10 years, continue to sign <laughs> one-year deals, continue to get traded at every deadline, probably to the Phillies or the Nationals. <laughs> yep, yep. All right. Twins sign Matt Shoemaker. One-year, $2 million. He'll probably be their fifth starter. He'll be competing with Randy Dobnak in camp. Depth arm, you're going to need depth arms. It's a long season. You know, your pitchers aren't, you know, they're coming off a shortened season, so everybody needs depth arms. So, um, and I'm not sure if he's totally healthy, given his mm-hmm. body track record recently, but, you know, all these guys are signing, all these teams are signing depth arms with slight bit of upside. Not much upside with him. He's mostly just an innings eater, but you need guys like that too. Yeah, he's shown some real flashes when he's healthy, but the key word there is when he's healthy. Yeah. All right, these next two I'll add together because it was really funny how they happened, where Tyler Anderson, a left-handed starting pitcher, signed for $2.5 million over one year, and then like five minutes later, Brett Anderson, a <laughs> left-handed pitcher, started signed for one year, $2.5 million. So uh, Tyler Anderson to the Pirates and Brett Anderson to the Brewers. Tyler Anderson, I mean, the Pirates need need a guy, right? They traded away a couple guys. <laughs> There's one. He's a warm body. Okay, fine. Brett Anderson, God love him. He's still chugging. <laughs> Every year he does this. He gets signed in February. And thankfully for him, it's a major league deal. He had, a, he had to get a minor league deal a couple years ago with the A's. But he keeps doing his fifth starter thing and getting by with it. And he's okay. And everybody knows he's okay at it. So why not keep signing him? He's cheap. He's effective for what he gets, for what he is. Okay. <laughs> yep. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Last one here. Mets. We alluded to this earlier. Mets signed Jonathan VR. It'll be one year and three and a half million guaranteed. Ah, not much to say on this one. I mean, there's a little bit of upside because he's always seems to outperform his his contract. Um, but you know, we he's another guy who basically is in this pool of veteran second baseman, and nobody's paying for second veteran second baseman, so he's a bench guy at this point. He'll be productive. He always is, you know. But he's you know he should be cheap. 
he fits kind of into that Almora Pilar territory of bench players that the Mets are spending some money on for some reason, and they kind of leave a weird taste in your mouth when you think about <laughs> them and about spending multiple millions of dollars on them, but it's really not a big deal because they're ben- just bench guys. <laughs> exactly. All right. If we did all of the free agents and trades like that, we could finish every podcast episode in 20 minutes. <laughs> Nobody would listen to it because it would be boring, but we could do it in 20 minutes. Yep. <clears throat> but look, I mean, there's there's not really any crazy overpays. I mean, they're all pretty much falling along fair value lines based mm-hmm. on our model. I mean, we're but we are entering the time of year when you can see some bargains. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, there's a few you know now but they're not like crazy bargains there's always sort of risk with each one of them or eight guys who were 35 or whatever rich hill was 41 so it's not like crazy bargains they should be cheap you know but there's still a little bit of like yeah i could see him you know having a better year than what you think is the model so sure Mm -hmm. all right let's hit this last thing here is our trade of the week we'll hit this in a few minutes and then we'll wrap up the episode so this one comes from decox 0139 and it's really it's got the last real trade chip on the market here i mean you could argue that oh matt chapman but that's not happening there's a couple other names you could argue but this is the last big one that would make some sense to be moved before opening day or before spring training gets too far underway and it's joey gallo of the rangers so in this deal, outfielder Joey Gallo is heading to the Cardinals. We have Gallo at $25.2 million in trade value. Joining him is minor league third baseman, or minor league infielder, excuse me, Jose Acosta at $0.8 million. So that gives 26 even heading to St. Louis. In exchange, the Cardinals are sending back left-handed pitching prospect Zach Thompson at 13.7, third baseman Jordan Walker at 7.6, Outfielder Justin Williams at 3.2, and catcher Edgardo Rodriguez at 1.4 for a total of 25.9. So these are almost perfectly even. This wasn't an incredibly popular trade in terms of I don't think many people have gotten their eyeballs on it yet. It was just from today, the 18th, so it's only got a couple thumbs up, a couple thumbs down as of the time of recording. Uh, but it's it's an interesting trade here with, as I mentioned, one of the last real trade chips left and with the Rangers kind of restocking here. So what do you, what's your initial take here? I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Gallo is, yeah, you know, you wonder why hasn't he been traded yet? Because the Rangers are clearly rebuilding. He's only got two years of control left. Yeah, he's not coming off the greatest year. So maybe they want to hold him another year and see if he breaks out a little bit more. Um, so it's not the end of the world if they don't trade him, but you know, he still has a fair amount of value based on his track record. And so, you know, they could use more prospects. Their farm is getting better, but not super great. So why not get a package of prospects? Zach Thompson is a very promising pitching prospect. Jordan Walker also has some you know, upside and a little bit of helium. So that's those two alone are like, oh, yeah. And then you throw in a couple other guys, Williams and Rodriguez. That's a package. So I could see it making sense from both teams' point of view. From the Cardinals' point of view, um, you know, their outfield, you think, okay, they don't need another outfielder. But when you look at them, they're like, well, maybe you do. I mean, you've got, okay, Bader's fine in center. He's not the best hitter, but he's a great glove. But then you've got, like, question marks. You've got Dylan Carlson, who's one of your top prospects, but he hasn't really established himself yet. So you don't necessarily know what you're going to get from him yet. Maybe he's not ready. He's still very young. You've got Tyler O'Neill and the other one, who's a cornerback, but he's not really ever really had a season where he's produced. He's shown flashes, but 
you know, are you going to rely on both of those guys in your two corners? So you could use another corner outfielder. And Gallo has been excellent, right? So, you know, and maybe you sort of split time between the other guys as he sort of comes up big. So I could see them using Gallo in that regard. I could see them getting better. Their offense, actually, even after Arenado, you know, is not that great. You've got Arenado, DeJong, and, and Goldschmidt, and not much else offensively. So they could use another bat. Um, so I think this one makes sense for both sides. Rangers get a prospect, Gallo gets a, the Cardinals get a bat. So I like it. Yeah, I, I agree that I really love this from the Cardinals' perspective, where they, you got to keep pushing for it. As of right now, I mean, most projections have them and the Brewers basically deadlocked in the NL Central, even after the Arenado edition, maybe a slight edge to the Cardinals. That's not what you're hoping for when you make the, the Arenado acquisition. You're not just hoping that it puts you in a tie with another mediocre team. You're hoping it makes you the favorite. And mm-hmm. so I think a move like this does make them the favorite because, as you mentioned, there's so much uncertainty out there. You're fine starting Bader out there, even if his bat sucks. You can take that hit because the glove is so good. And you're mm-hmm. fine starting Dylan Carlson out there because he has so much upside. He's your top prospect. You want to see what you got there. I think that O'Neill spot... he's not totally done yet, but showing flashes for this long in his career isn't enough. At some point, he's got to put it together over a stretch, and I just don't know if he's going to do that. He might be better Mm -hmm. as a bench piece with some pop, some defense, some speed, Mm -hmm. Um, and just stick Gallo out there into one of those outfield spots. It's really pretty flexible out there because he can play all three, and really you'll see much stronger production. And then from the Rangers' perspective, Gallo's the last big name that's there, unless you're counting... Rugnet Odor is a big name. I do not. Nope. But Gallo, he's never felt like the type of player. Obviously, if he were hitting at his ceiling, yes, of course, he's a fan favorite. But the type of player that he's been, the kind of frustrating, you know, a lot of his value comes from OBP and home runs, and he strikes out a ton, always going to have low batting averages. That's not the type of player that really, that really has a huge following. Um, among a casual fan base. That's that's the type that the casual fans complain about, about how, oh, baseball is just three true outcomes right now, and they're putting 16 guys on the right side of the field for this guy. What's going on here? Just just bunt it the other way or whatever. And I, there's, I have a slight theory that more of those types of people may happen to live in Texas. Um, <laughs> so, so I obviously do not have my ear to the ground with the Texas Rangers fan base, but I wouldn't be surprised if, as a whole, they, they, they don't love Gallo outside of some of the more dedicated fans that kind of know where his value comes from. And so it's not necessarily this big deal of, oh, it's a new ballpark. We can't trade away our star because I feel like a lot of people wouldn't really care too much. And then in the return, they're they're continuing, I think, what has been a pretty solid offseason for them in terms of restocking talent into what was kind of a mediocre farm system. I think they've spent the past four or five years just kind of treading water and not really doing much of anything. And then finally, with Chris Young at the helm this offseason, they've started to pick a direction and go for it. And that's with adding guys like Nate Lowe, like Dane Dunning, um, a handful of other names that they've picked up that are really looking like interesting additions to their young up-and-coming core here. And I think adding Thompson, adding Walker, adding an MLB-ready guy in Williams who can slot in, you see what he, he's not as, as highly regarded as he once was, but you can see what you got there in terms of him replacing Gallo right away. Uh, I think that makes that this a really strong return for them in many ways. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. And, and the other thing about Will Williams is he's out of options. So... Mm-hmm. Um, and he may be blocked in in St. Louis. So um, 
you know, if you're traded, you, you get playing playing time and being out of options on a team like the Rangers is not so big a deal because he's got an opportunity. So, so you know, so I can see a change of scenery there as well. So I think this would be an interactive pack package for the Rangers, and so I think this trade makes sense. Yep. All right. So thank you again, Gcox0139, and did a great job with this trade proposal. All right. That's that's a pretty pretty densely packed episode <laughs> we we had a ton to cover and i think we covered it in about as short amount of time as you could expect us to given our why do we record. talk so much <laughs> we talk so much because we love baseball and we're excited <laughs> it's almost back on yeah. that note i do have one last little tidbit that i think uh it, it makes me very happy it's probably not a good thing but it makes me happy in a way that uh that I, that I appreciate these days and it's that we're still not going to have the Toronto Blue Jays to start the 2021 season. I feel bad for them and I feel bad for laughing at this because it's kind of not funny, but it is funny that they're going to start the season in Dunedin, Florida. <laughs> so now it's the Dunedin, Dunedin, however you say it, Blue Jays. Yeah. Well, it, so I I'm going to have to get I'm at this moment wearing a Buffalo Blue Jays t-shirt because I thought it'd be a collector's item. Um, <laughs> and, and I love it. It's got Boba Shed on it. And, and, you know, cause I thought, okay, they're only going to be in Buffalo for one season last year. So now I guess I'm going to have to get a Dunedin <laughs> Blue Jays. Now I'm not a Blue Jays fan. I'm a baseball fan. I just think it's cool, you know, but uh, you know, uh, I, yeah, uh, they need a home and it's been an issue with them, you know, and it, it's been reported that free agents are, you know, reluctant to sign with them because they don't know what they're playing. So it's, uh, but, but, you know, they got an exciting team. So if I were living in Dunedin, Florida, I would go see them. Yeah. I, <laughs> you, you might be taking this a little bit better than I am because I, I just, I actually just burned my uh, Buffalo Blue Jays Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Jersey. Aww. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 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 they just don't, teams don't show loyalty anymore. You know, the city of Buffalo is nothing but good to them and they're already gone. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> All jokes aside, I hope they can get home soon. A lot of that is predicated on COVID calming down, and obviously I hope that happens in both yeah. the United States and Canada sooner rather than later. Uh, but in the meantime, we are very close to some real baseball. I, I can hear it outside my window, the, the catcher's mitts popping out in Arizona here, and it's, we're going to have some real games to watch on TV in the very near future, and that's a beautiful thing. I agree. It's awesome. All right, that'll do it for this week. I'm expecting a lot less news within the next week, maybe the last handful of moves before spring training. Uh, but there, 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 there'll be a couple. We'll have stuff to talk about next week. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. We'll be back in, in, next week to break down whatever's left of the offseason moves and potentially uh, get to a couple other ideas we have. It could be fun. So uh, make sure you tune back in next week. Until then, stay safe and enjoy the first week of spring training. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.